Amen. Thank you, Jesse. All right, good morning to all of you. And as you heard, if you've been here the last few few weeks, uh, we had um, Dr. James Renahan here last week. Uh, but this week, we're continuing in our series in Ruth. And so as David said, yes, I will bring you up to speed. I think that's always important when we're going through a book, uh, not just to jump into the middle, but to know the context of the book and the context of the section. So uh, to bring us up to speed, we looked at two weeks ago was the last two-thirds of the first chapter of Ruth includes some form of the Hebrew verb shuv, meaning to turn or to return 12 times. And if you're paying attention, I know I said 11 two weeks ago, but I missed one. So a full 12 times, the picture of turning, returning, going back, coming back. I think that's a bit of a hint for us. So that indeed is the main idea of uh, the end of chapter 1. And so here's the uh, scenario. They left Bethlehem. Anyone remember what, what Bethlehem means? Um, yeah, Beth, house, lechem, bread, house of bread. Uh, this also is not coincidental. They leave the house of bread because of a famine. And why is there famine? Because the people of the Lord, this is the time of the judges, the people of the Lord are not following the Lord. They're not obeying the Lord. And because they're not keeping his commandments, the Lord promised them, if you obey me, I will prosper you. If you don't, you will notice. They noticed. Ruth and her family, they noticed. They went to Moab, and um, their family sought the, the security in Moab, and uh, her husband dies, her two sons die, and leave her with her two Moabite uh, daughter-in-laws that she's adopted, and she calls them daughters. And so they hear that there is uh, food again in the land of Israel, and they walk back, and um, she gives them this uh, loving pitch on why they should remain in Moab. Um, All sarcasm intended there. So she presents before them a choice. Go back to the comfort and security of Moab, or take your chances with this bitter, childless old woman in Bethlehem. Here's your two options. You get everything you want there. You've got nothing with me. Uh, That's where we are. We're also going to continue that theme, as Pastor Jesse said, of prodigal. Prodigal is one who uses up, one who sets out. They kind of just throw behind everything that they have, and they go out on their own. And so this uh, text is is symbolic, and if you look in your outlines, um, there are two highly symbolic parts. The turn... In 15 through 18, it'll be a turn in direction and affection. This theme of the peoples and gods of Moab. Ruth is giving a confession and turning from them. Um, And then there's the return. The turn and the return to Bethlehem. From the peoples and the gods of Moab to the provision in the people of God. These two prodigals are coming back with nothing to show for their time in Moab. So let's read. I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 1. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And she said, she being Naomi here, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from from following you. For 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 where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi heard, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for the wisdom of your word. That the events that affect two widows over 4,000 years ago still has so much to teach us. There's so much application in this, this text. We could spend weeks on it. But yet even greater than the application to our lives, this is your plan for redemption. Your provision for your people in Israel and your people from every tongue, tribe, and nation was that these women would go back to Bethlehem and that one of them would would bear a son who would bear a son who would bear a son who would bear a son. And from the line of that son would come Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So this text is personally important because it has much to teach us about our relationship with you. But it is ultimately important because it points us to our Savior who was born in that very same town. God, you are so incredible in how you work these things out. Help us to be in awe and wonder of you. Help us, like Ruth, to count the cost and find Jesus worthy to follow and leave all behind. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said uh, last time, Ruth's oath is so rich, uh, we need to lean in a little bit and spend some time on it. Um, And as we said last time, it not only functions as her statement of faith, it signifies her conversion. A conversion is a change of heart, a change of allegiance, a change of direction, physically, um, figuratively, and spiritually. I want to pick up in verse 15. So Naomi's made her a charge, or or, or made her a challenge, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left. Ruth clings to her. You can almost kind of see the scene of Orpah in the the distance, them watching her go and the dust picking up under her feet. And Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. But these details are important. Don't miss this. Because Naomi knows, even if she doesn't realize in the moment, the spirit in inspiring this test has instructed us, Orpah has gone to back to her people and to her gods. We've said this all along, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, your, your people and your gods, they were synonymous. Most gods were, were area-specific, where Moab had gods who only had power in Moab. And so if you're going to petition the gods of Moab, you need to go back to Moab. And so those people 
In many Eastern cultures today, your family name and your family gods are inseparable. And so the implication of Orpah going back is that she is choosing the people and the gods of Moab over the people and the God of Israel. And so in that moment, Naomi gives her final challenge, even a command, return after your sister-in-law. Go back. And Ruth in that moment is given a chance to count the cost. I want to begin with this because we'll be thinking about this all the way through. Luke 14, Jesus gives a picture of what it looks like to follow him. He gives a, a challenge for people who would come after him. Luke 14, beginning in verse 26. Him speaking to the, the great crowd here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we hear those words and those sound pretty extreme, Jesus. Because we know the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. But we also know if you know Jesus, he is more glorious and more worthy than either our mother and fathers. And the love in which we love him makes the love for our parents pale in comparison. He goes on. Even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is what Ruth is saying. I'll never see my parents again. My life is no longer my own. I cling to you, Naomi, and by clinging to you, I cling to your God. Whoever does not bear his own cross, verse 27, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The road to Calvary was not easy. It was not paved with, with comfort and excess. Jesus carried his own cross because what he would go to do what was set before him was worth it. The joy before him, even in carrying his cross, I will endure this for the redemption of my people. How could we not, for the Savior who died for us, share in his suffering and leave all behind for him? For which of you, Jesus now gives some illustrations, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, in any other secular realm, you would, you would count the cost. You'd figure out how much money you have, how much the uh, materials would cost, how much time you have before winter or before uh, some other kind of deadline. Otherwise, if you just start and he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him uh, who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't know if Naomi realized it, but the Lord was using her to help Ruth count the cost. And so in that, has Ruth considered it? And we love her response. Verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. 
Orpah clung to her people and her gods. But Naomi, or Ruth clung to Naomi. I won't return. I won't stop following you. And then she tells her what that means. She makes a covenantal oath with her. And I want to break these down. But what's interesting here is this is very poetic and rhythmic within, within the Hebrew language. There are three couplets. A couplet is two either parallel or, or, or contrasting uh, ideas. So you've got three parallel ideas. Um, and in the Hebrew, they are, they are two short rhythmic lines each. The, the, the sincerity of Ruth's commitment escalates with each one. Living, worshiping, dying. Her commitment increases in each line. However, like what often happens in Hebrew poetry is the most important idea, the heart of the matter, is at the very center. And so that is where we will spend most of our time. But the first one, the first couplet, where you will go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. The Hebrew here for go is just walk. As you go throughout your day, wherever you put one foot in front of the other, I will be there too. Wherever you lodge, in the Hebrew, this is literally wherever you spend the night. When you wake up, I'm looking in your eyes. When you go to sleep, I'm right next to you. I am that little puppy you can't get rid of because I am loyal to you and I love you. If this wasn't so beautiful, it would be kind of creepy. But it is beautiful. It is complete commitment. This, in Hebrew poetry, is what we call a mirrorism. A mirrorism shows from one degree to the other, showing all of life, from the young to the old, to the rich to the poor, from the time that I wake up to the time that I go to sleep. All of my life will be spent with you. This proves she truly is her daughter begins with this beautiful personal sentiment. And then it, it escalates. Um, this is so direct in the, in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, this says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. She doesn't, she doesn't mince words. We'll have a personal connection, but now your nation is my nation. Your God is my God. We will worship together. I belong where you belong. Every part of me. And I love that when we get into chapter 2, just a sneak peek. Let's jump to verse 11 of chapter 2. Boaz picks up on this. Boaz hears the rumor mill about Naomi coming back and about this, this young lady, Ruth, and he likes what he hears. This is what Ruth, or Boaz has heard, verse 11. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. What does Boaz recognize? She aligns herself with the people. Verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognizes it is the people and it is the God of Israel that is most important. This is what he loves about Ruth. This is a godly love story. This is a godly woman and a godly man who recognizes her maturity. And it shows how different her heart was than her sister-in-law. So, um, these together are the core of our section and really at the heart of the book. 
and this idea of people in God, uh, if you've read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, it is all throughout. Especially, as you get, especially in the law. Because as Israel's getting ready to go into the land, as they're getting ready to face all these Canaanite nations, God is jealous for his people. He tells them, I am your God. You are my people. Don't be like the other peoples. I could go to many places, uh, but Leviticus 20, 26 sums it up well. If you don't know the purpose of the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is the, the, the book of the priests, the uh, Levites who were to instruct people and guide people and direct them in worship and in practice. And this priestly book was to help people come to God and come to God rightly. Leviticus 20, 26 says, you shall be holy to me for because I, the Lord, am holy and I have separated you from the peoples so that you should be mine. This is such a powerful statement. Your people, my people, your God, my God. I set you apart to be distinct for me because I love you that much. And that was the the priestly charge of the priest those days, to remind the people, you are set apart. You are different from everyone else. Our worship is different. Our diet is different. Our actions are different because our God is different. And so this phrase, this statement is a very priestly admission. I'm committing myself to the people of, to your people and to your God. And this idea is carried forward because now, that there is no longer need for Levitical priests. We have a great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we have now transferred from the uh, time where we need to be reminded by priests to we have, a, we have a great high priest who has transformed us, who has given us his spirit so that we can indeed be a kingdom of priests. This idea of a people in God is picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2. Because the identity of the people of God has always been the same to be associated with him, but now it is so much more because now we have a priestly calling. We ourselves have been set aside for ministry. We ourselves are priests to the world, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we looked at at the beginning of chapter one. The darkness in Moab. There's nothing good in the first five verses of Ruth. But the Lord called his people, his own, his elect, out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Once, Ruth, you were not a people. Once, Grace Fellowship, you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had received, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is always God's design to create a people for himself that he would show his love and his, and his mercy on, that we would have a God rightly. This has been God's plan from the garden to glory. Look at Revelation 21.3. Revelation 20, 21.3, at the consummation, at the end of all things, what do we have to look forward to? What has God accomplished? What has he brought about for his glory? Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's why we had to stop in Ruth's confession, in her oath, because it is so theologically rich, but also it gets to the heart of who God is and who he created us to be. And this also is a picture of conversion. When we follow Christ, his people become our people. His family, our family. His inheritance, our inheritance. We, like Ruth, should cling to Christ and forsake all else. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And even his suffering is still worth following him. I think it's important to notice here that in our culture, in our day, I speak to so many people who think that they can separate the two. Meaning, they like to claim God, but I don't like the church. Oh, yeah, the Jesus guy, like, it's the people I have a problem with. They are inseparable. Because Christ himself came to, to unite us. He said, I will never leave you, never forsake you. He said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. He said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. But we have so many arrogant people who have a Jesus of their own making who think it is easier just to say I love this sky God that I've made up than to actually walk with the people that he's died for. We're difficult. We are sheep. We are noisy. We are stinky. We are stubborn. And Jesus loves us. Our conversion calls for us to live for Christ and to live with the people of Christ. The church is like Moab and Israel in that way. The people and the God are inseparable. But it is so much more for us. Because this is not merely familial association. This is an unbreakable union between Christ and his church sealed in his blood. This text in Ruth is so rich with the gospel. So it's only natural in this final couplet where she takes it up a notch in her eyes. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. This is her complete commitment. Burial place meant belonging. Notice when all of the uh, patriarchs die, we either know where they were buried or they mention that we don't know where they're buried because that's important. This is where I will rest forever. This is where my, my body resides. I will live with you as long as you're alive. And even after you die, I'll be next to you. We had a wedding here a couple days ago. It made me think of the, the beautiful picture when two people stand together and they say, in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, these, these mirrorisms for all of life, for better or for worse, till death do us and weddings are special because of the love and commitment that is expressed in that morning. And the way that Ruth pleads to Naomi, say, I will follow you, I will stay with you. It's the way that Karina pleads with Raphael. I will follow you, I will stay with you. Your people will be my people. Wherever you go, I will go. It is, it is beautiful. And then she says, she even puts a stipulation, meaning she puts a consequence if she doesn't do it. 
May the Lord do so with me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is what is required of every convert, everyone who follows Christ. You die to yourself. You take up your cross. Following Christ is a life sentence from this life, throughout life, and after life. Whether I live or die, I will be with you. This is such a beautiful gospel pledge that Ruth makes to Naomi. But just like the gospel call, many will hear it, like Orpah, and many will turn back because it's too much. It's too difficult. There's not enough comfort. There's not enough guarantee. But those who do follow, they will forsake all else because they have counted the cost. And at that, Naomi is finally silenced. Verse 18, Naomi saw this, that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. So this section should remind us of how often the Lord works with us, doesn't he? Shows us the failures and the shortcomings and the empty promises of the Moabs we create. I could go over there and everything will be easier. I know what to expect over here. I don't have to trust you, God, because everything's laid out for me. Ruth had to follow in faith because she didn't know what was, gonna, what was before her. She'd never been to Bethlehem. She's an outsider. He shows us the emptiness of the Moabs of our own creation and their consequences. And it is far better for us that we experience difficulty and loss, yet turn to the Lord, than we remain in Moab and we never see the folly of our idols. Jesus taught us that we must count the cost for discipleship because it is worth forsaking all else. And so some of you might ask, what about Orpah? We never hear of her again. Maybe she had a great life. Maybe she met her, her, her Prince Charming, you know, had the uh, storybook ending with the uh, beautiful wedding in Moab. We don't know. But here's what we do know. The cost was too much for her. Here's what else we know. She one day died. She might have lived it up in Moab. But since she did not die to herself, since she chose the gods of Moab, she will die, what we saw in Revelation is the second death, the death that goes on forever. She will be in torment forever because she sought, she sought comfort for a time. She bet on a horse that could not finish. She had this weak, scraggly horse that she said, that's the one I want to ride. You know why? Because it had a nice, comfy saddle. It had lots of jewels on it. Man, I could take a comfortable ride, a cushy ride to hell in that thing. And that's what people are doing when they reject the gospel call. I would rather be comfortable on this miserable excuse for a horse than to turn and trust the living God. So it should cause us to consider, what am I betting my eternity on? What horse am I tying myself to? Have I counted the cost? Do I truly believe that life is better in Moab than with the living God and the people of God? 
part number two, the return. Verses 19 through 22. This is a little short section, um, but again, repetition is important here. We say this all the time because what is repeated, especially in Hebrew, is important. Um, Did anyone forget where they were traveling to? Anyone not remember that it was Bethlehem when you read it earlier? When you read it the first time, and then the second time, and then the third time? Verse 19, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had came to Bethlehem, it was three words ago. We didn't forget already. And then, again, and verse 22, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You think there's a message that's being driven home here? Remember what Bethlehem means, house of bread. Why did they leave? There was a famine. There is a promise of the Lord's provision back in verse 6. The Lord has visited his people. There's food again. And where do they go? To the house where the food is baked. Bethlehem. This is the answer to the famine in their bellies. But it is also the answer to the famine in their souls. Because there's a lot of theological significance to Bethlehem. Now that you've returned, now you've come back to my house where there's plenty of bread, let me show you how good and gracious I am. Let me feed you. So there's a bit of a disclaimer on this one. This will not be a gluten-free sermon. I, um, we live in a day where the whole world is divided over bread and gluten. Um, but let's put that aside for a moment. Imagine, if you will, before genetic modification, when everyone ate bread and loved it. When everyone had, when, when, when you got that, that nice new piece of loaf, I'm sorry, gluten-free people, I'm just going to geek out for a second. When you get that nice, fresh, hot loaf of bread, it is amazing. And imagine when you live in a culture where there's not a lot of food, but what you have is a lot of grain. And when you bake that bread and you come together and you eat, it is a sign that everything is good. Doesn't it just warm you inside to eat fresh bread? Yeah, there's, there's some nodding hungry heads. You're going to be much more hungry before the end of this. Um, but think about it. Our God gives bread. For a culture who didn't have a lot of meat, they didn't have refrigeration, the fact that there is a house of bread and it's open for business again, that is good news. That is very encouraging for hungry people, for women who don't know how they're going to provide, how they're going to feed themselves. way for there to be bread fed his people with manna in the wilderness. They did nothing for it. They left Israel complaining. And instead of giving them what they deserve, he gave them grace. And they woke up and bread grew on the grass. That is our God. That is the God who promises to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And that is the God who promises to provide for you. He knows you need daily bread. It is so essential, Jesus taught us to pray for it. He will provide. And another amazing picture of this is our Savior. When 5,000 people come with him to eat, or to to hear uh, him, him teach, and they have nothing to eat. The famous story of the five loaves and the two fishes. He feeds 5,000 people. Anyone know where that is in the Gospel of John? What chapter? Six. 
Joseph, did you know that or did you look at my notes? <laughs> A little bit of both. All right, I'll, I'll give you credit for that one. Um, in John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. And I want you to turn to John chapter 6. But before you do, I just want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 3. Or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 3. Notice the connection that is made in Deuteronomy. Jesus is going to make the same connection in uh, John chapter 6. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and feed with, with and, he, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, you, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. John chapter 6. Jesus doesn't just multiply the bread and the loaves because the people were, were hungry. He did it to set up what he was going to say the very next day. Notice what he says. Now, all of our children's Bibles love this idea of the five loaves and the two fishes. It makes for a great pictorial illustration, but it serves for a theological point. Picking up later in chapter 6, verse 26. So remember, this is the uh, next day. The disciples went off on their own. The, the, the crowds hunt Jesus down. And when they, when they come to him, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're so short-sighted. You're, you're missing the point. Do not work for the food that perishes. This was our corporate reading earlier. But for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and whom he has sent. Isn't that such a human response? What must I do? Be better, give more, do more things. No, believe. This is the only work that leads to faith. Believe. This is the work of God, that you believe on him and whom he has sent. You stiff-necked people. Then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe? The irony here. He had just multiplied five loaves and two fishes the day before. He just tells them, believe in God. Believe in the one who he has sent and you will live. And show us a sign. And what did they appeal to? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. These idiots. He just multiplied bread, and they're saying, why don't you do something amazing like what God did in the wilderness? He gave us bread from heaven to eat. Where do you think the multiplied bread came from? Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. Good answer. And he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, and yet you do not. You see me, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ruth now literally and symbolically and spiritually enters into Bethlehem. 
she comes back to the house of bread in faith. The people of God dwelt there, and one day Jesus Christ would be born there. And so now let's pick back up in our second section after a very long introduction. Verse 19. So the, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now let's, let's just reorient ourselves here. They both travel there. But remember, Mo, uh, Ruth had never been there. They remember Naomi. It's been at least 10 years since they've seen Naomi. But everyone else stayed in, in Bethlehem. But her family was a bit opportunistic. Can you imagine all the old Jewish ladies saying, um, you, you think they noticed when she returned? So, Naomi, grass wasn't as green over there. Things weren't as peachy in Moab as, as you thought it would be. Moab, here's the Moabite princess coming back to join us again. And, of course, by this time, because of all she's been through, she's got quite a few more rolled miles on her face. She is not the young, vibrant woman who left. And now the additional shame and embarrassment of having to come with her head low and her tail between her legs. And this is why she responds, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. That's what Naomi means. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. In the Hebrew, this is don't, or in the Hebrew, this is call me bitter because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. I am a bitter woman. Side note, I still know Jewish parents who named their, their daughters Mara. I don't know why you would name your child bitter. Um, but if there's any Maras in here, I'm sorry. But notice that Naomi is an experienced theologian. Four times in two verses, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's a theologian, but not a very good one. Her theology is right, but it's, but it's incomplete. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. God is sovereign, amen? But God is also good, amen? She forgot that God is good. She doesn't blame her husband's faithfulness. She blames the Lord. She knows God did it, but she doesn't realize that, that, that she deserved it. And so I want to lean into a phrase she says here in the middle. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Full. What does she mean by full? Let's look back. She had her husbands. She had her sons. She had daughters-in-law. She had all the confidence and promise that they'd have a long, prosperous life in Moab. She was full. She was completely full of herself. She was completely full in her own self-reliance until everything is stripped away. Everything she depends on and trusted in is stripped away. It's gone. She is now empty of anything she has put her trust in. And she has no option but to throw herself before the feet of the Lord and beg for his mercy. She went away full of herself, and she repented and turned back. But 
she had to be emptied first before she could be filled. Isn't that where we've come, brothers and sisters? Isn't that where we still need to come? How often is our cup so full of our own ideas and our own hopes and our own comforts that we can't be filled? You cannot fill a cup that is already full. But when you empty it out, when everything that we hold dear that, is, that, it, that does not last into eternity is, is emptied out, then it can begin to be filled. And then it overflows with God's grace upon grace upon grace, like we read in the 23rd Psalm. So many of us are full in our own estimation that we have no need for the Lord. So he often, lovingly, through his dark providences, brings us empty so that we can see our need of him. Ruth knew her emptiness. Naomi right now is learning it. And so for us, brothers and sisters, and for us, if you are here and you don't know Christ today, you cannot embrace the bitterness of the cup Christ drank unless we first learn the bitterness of our own souls and the emptiness, spiritually speaking, without Christ. You may be full of yourself, and that is only death. That brings no life with it. So this final little paragraph here. Um, again, repetition, so that we pay attention. Um, now, Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Uh, did you just forget again? Where is she from? Moab? What country did she leave? Moab? Okay. Um, why, why, why repeat this? Um, Ian Duguid said this the best. She would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. That's there for emphasis. This unclean ham sandwich is trying to show up to the bar mitzvah. But that emphasis is also there to show you how great God's reconciliation and restoration is. This is a book of hope. This chapter is a cycle of restoration. It begins in Bethlehem. But famine, death, and humility come upon Ruth and Naomi. And now they're back to Bethlehem when? at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi's journey, I think, parallels our own. We are full and self-sufficient. We chase after the idols of our own making, and we must have our comforts die and strip from us. We must be emptied so that we can return to the Lord. And in that, the prodigals now become a part of the harvest. Just like when the prodigal son returned to the father and he slaughtered the fattened calf and he brought them home, he brought him home and celebrated. They came home with their heads down and their tails between their legs, but he rolled out the harvest for them. This is full of gospel symbolism. And we, like Ruth, can say uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it'll be on the screen. And then we're going to put all this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, me too, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. From now on, the un uncircumcision needs to be ham sandwich. That's just, that's great. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, 
You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is Ruth's state right now. And the strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Notice, we're reconciled to God and the body of Christ. You're not just only reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God and the people of God all in one fell swoop through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Ruth, and peace to those who were near, Naomi. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, a kingdom of priests, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. So now let's put this together. For our final point, I want to spend our last few moments uh, in the time of contemplation and preparation for the Lord's Supper. Both of these sections come together at the table we're about to partake of in just a moment. The Lord's Supper is a communion meal. So I've used that, that word. We are, we are communing. We are coming together with the Lord. We're also coming together with one another between God and his people. As we, see in, we saw in this text, our king was born in the house of bread. And as a sinless child, he was born of a virgin in a manger in this town. And he sacrificed himself, not because he had to, but because we are so bitter and unlovable that, we, that he had to for us. And in so, he became our bread of life that we would eat of always and never hunger again and never thirst again. This meal symbolizes our turn from death and our returning to the harvest, coming to the feast of the elect. Like Ruth, we confess with our lips, and we follow him with our lives, in life and in death. And this meal reminds us of that. This meal is for those who have turned and believed the promises of God. This meal is for those who have repented, believed, and are saved through their faith. This meal is for those who have counted the cost, who've turned and who've come. This meal is a meal of a new covenant. This is a covenant in Christ's blood. And in that covenant, here's what he says. Where you go, I will go. Where you sleep, I will be there with you. My people are now your people. I'm your God. I am now connecting myself to you. You don't have to come after me because I came after you. And in faith, you are buried with me. You will die with me because you've died with me to your sins. When you die in this flesh, it means life everlasting. And whether you are Naomi or Ruth, Jew, Gentile, slave, 
free, male, female. That dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by the one man and his sacrifice and his covenant with us. We alluded to the priests earlier. Bread was important to the, to, to the priests. Every Lord's Day, every Sabbath, they would bake bread. I want you to, to, to see this, this uh, picture and think about the parallels as we approach this table. Leviticus chapter 24. They, these were the instructions given to the Levitical priests in the temple. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Uh, in our time in Revelation, we should know that 12 symbolizes the fullness of the people of God. Two tenths of an ephah um, shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on, the, on a table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense in each pile, that it may go with you as bread for a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper every week? Because we need a reminder of our covenant with the Lord every week. And if the, 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 the Levites, the priests in the temple needed to look on the bread every week to be reminded, how much more so for the kingdom of priests? And here's the significance of the bread as it go on. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. This is also called the bread of the presence. In Christ, in the new covenant, we have the holy portion in him. We have the bread of the presence himself who has promised to be with his church, where two or more of you are gathered, I am there also. That's why we believe what we believe about the supper. There's nothing magical in this bread. It's not changing into anything else. But Christ has guaranteed that where his people are, he is. And his presence is with us. And we need that reminder that we in Christ have been given the holy portion. We in Christ are his priests. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as the people of God. Every time we come together, we receive this promise. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul gives the instructions to the church, five times he says, come together, come together, come together. He is reminding the people that this is a corporate meal. This is a meal for the people of God. This is a feast for the people who eat of the bread of life. So much so that he warns them on how not to come together, yet how they should come together. At the beginning of the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I need you to turn there. You should know where this is. We go here often. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. I will wait for the flipping of pages. That's a good, that's a good sound. But in the following instructions, I do commend you because, let's, let's do the count here. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And then he tells them all the mistakes that they're making. 
Then he gives them the institution of the supper. And then after the institution of the supper, let's pick up again uh, further down in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at his house. And when you have come together, it will not be for judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is a meal in which we come together. And this is why we don't take it in an unworthy manner. Because this is for the people of God who love one another. The God who has laid down his life for us. And so we don't approach it lightly. We don't approach it flippantly, but reverently and joyfully. This is a table of our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. So brothers and sisters, in Christ we can truly break bread. When we eat, we talk, we fellowship, we do it, we come together in him and with the bread of life. And we're going to do that today after service. The men will break bread together. The women will break bread together. If you're not hungry enough, um, Sheree baked bread for the ladies. Sorry she didn't make enough for the, the men. But uh, I'm fully enjoying this sourdough trend and um, benefiting, benefiting from it. But since we can't live on bread alone, let me read the end of John chapter 6 and then we'll come to the table. Go back to John chapter 6. Through this, we've hit this entire section. And in the family follow-up, I hope you guys read through and think through John chapter 6. It's a good conversation to have with your family. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Brothers and sisters, those words are true. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Brothers and sisters, this table is a remembrance and a promise. That through the body and blood, deacons, you can get ready and come forward or go back. That through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you will live forever. And if your trust is in him, this table is for you. Gluten-free people, you can, you can feast too. That's all gluten-free. <laughs> 